Hi, I'm Mark Lint, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to authors of two new books. First, we talk to David Siddhartha Patel about his new book, Order Out of Chaos, about Iraq after the American invasion. And then we talk to Jessica Barnes, author of the book, Staple Security, about bread and wheat in Egypt. Thanks for listening to the program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by David Siddhartha Patel. He's at the Crown Center at Brandeis University. He's the author of the brand new book, Order Out of Chaos, Islam, Information, and the Rise and Fall of Social Orders in Iraq. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see some really serious political science research on Iraq, which, as you've noted in the past, is too often neglected in uh, Middle East political science. And uh, so this was a really a, a pleasure to read, uh, something that's original, analytical, and rich. So what I want to hear from you is tell me about the book. Uh, you know, what do you think the main contributions are? Why did you write it? So first of all, thank you for having me. POMEPS is a tremendous organization and institution, and, and, and it's all, all due to you. So thank you for, for having me on. Uh, so the book can be read at different levels. So part of it is me making sense of my fieldwork experience. So I was one of the few academics doing fieldwork in Iraq uh, soon after the invasion in 2003. And we now know a lot of what happened in Iraq in sense of the, the rise of, of religious uh, politics, the, the, the influence of clerics for both Sunnis and Shias, but especially for Shias, people like Grand Ayatollah Sistani, their tremendous influence in that early transition period. You didn't see that on the ground initially when you arrived in Iraq. If you go back and look at the lists that were put together by academics and by policy people before the invasion of who would possibly be influential in post-invasion Iraq, you never saw Sistani's name. You never saw Souther's name, Mukhtar the Souther. You never saw the name of Sunni clerics who became influential, like Hadith Bavari or Adnan Delaney. And so part of it is me making sense of why Iraqis quote unquote, turn to the mosque after, after the invasion. Uh, that's one way to read the book and this explanation of post-invasion Iraqi politics, why they went a certain way. But the book can also be read in, in terms of making a contribution to these three big enduring questions that social scientists for, for millennia have been interested in, which is how do people create order in the absence of a state? What's the, what are the origins and limits of political authority? And third, the rise and salience of collective identities. Uh, these are usually treated as separate topics. And in this book, I, I show the, that they're sequential and that they're interconnected. And so in that sense, it's, it's about Iraq, but it's also using data from Iraq to speak to these much larger, big and enduring questions. Let's talk about the data from Iraq first, uh, because you did quite a bit of interesting field work and also some other kinds of innovative GIS work. Tell us about what goes into the substance of the book before we get into the theory. Uh, well, the data come from a lot of different places. So I, I did field work in Iraq starting in uh, September 2003, and I was in Iraq for seven months. Uh, as I mentioned, I was one of the few academics uh, outside the so-called green zones. I was living with an Iraqi family uh, in their home in Basra, a fairly middle-class family. And I, I, I was immersed in the, the, we'll talk about it, the anarchy that existed. When I say anarchy, the state collapsed. Uh, uh, Iraq, Iraq, Iraq is oftentimes called a failed state, but the thing is Iraq wasn't a failing state before the invasion. It was actually quite a strong state. If you look back in the early nineties and the early sanctions period, the, the, the Iraqi state was had, had decreased in strength after the 91 war. But by the late 1990s, especially after the 99 oil for food program, the Iraqi state had tremendous wealth and it distributed that wealth through all these uh, social networks, through tribes and religious groups. But it was a very strong state up until the invasion. And then the, the state gets, gets raptured for lack of a better word. It collapses overnight. Uh, when the U.S. Uh, uh, during the invasion, and so Iraqis suddenly found themselves living in a in a in an in world, anarchic in the sense that there was no there was no Leviathan, and so I was I was living with them in that same environment. So in some sense, I'm I'm an observer, I'm a participant observer, but in other ways, and I'm I'm an observing participant, making sense of what was happening in in the neighborhood, in the city, in the country at the same time as Iraqis were also trying to make sense of those. So that's kind of the core of the book. 
And then it's really interesting that notion of, of them also not being sure what was going on. It's not so much them being informants as in a, in a lot of traditional research, which is what makes this quite interesting, is that you're immersed in that same level of uncertainty. Absolutely. No one had any idea what the heck was going on. And remember that Iraq was just getting out of sanctions. So suddenly the, the Iraq was just flooded with all of these goods that hadn't been accessible uh, during the sanctions period. And I mean, some of it was really basic stuff. So anyone who had some money, the first thing they would do was repair some pipes around their house. Uh, so you actually get some decent water flow and there'd be these constant gossip about the price of what, what people call Turkish pipes versus Chinese pipes versus German pipes and which were better. Plastic tanks, which were unaffordable during sanctions. People would be trying to buy these to replace the rusted metal ones on the roof. And it sounds silly, but man, if you can double your water pressure in your house, I mean, suddenly this is, this is a place where you don't get much electricity too. So having a nice shower makes a huge difference. So that sort of, that sort of like gossip of what's going on, what's possible, those are what people were talking about, more so in these larger political issues about the, the, the Constitution being debated. It was all about local stuff, goods flowing in. Uh, it, it felt like every used car lot in the Gulf suddenly dumped their cargo into Iraq. So Iraq was being flooded with used Pajeros and, and all sorts of used vehicles from, uh, uh, from Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and even some from the UAE. And that just methodologically speaking, uh, one of the things which is fascinating about the book is the way you combine kind of ethnography, real ethnography with what's fundamentally a rationalist uh, interpretation of politics. Yes, I'm, I'm one of these oddballs. I, I think there's a natural affinity, and I say this in the book, between uh, game theory and ethnography. And those are usually seen as diametrically opposed, uh, if you want to call them methodologies, but perspectives. But you know what a game theorist does is they sit down, they identify who the relevant actors are, they identify what what strategies are how the how these actors interact, the strategies available to them, and then kind of the payoff or the 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 ranking of those various outcomes from the perspective of the individual. You know, getting all that right is is what ethnographers do best. Mm -hmm. But maybe by learning a little game theory, ethnographers might be able to make better sense of these strategic dynamics that they're seeing within society. So I really think there's a natural affinity between those two perspectives. Uh, those deduct, they're both deductive in many ways, but the way political science has developed and with the uh, mathematical sophistication of a lot of game theoretic training, they, they've kind of been driven further apart. I make the lar a larger argument in this book about culture and what, what culture is and culture as basically a set of strategic beliefs and, and, and coordination as, as, as culture, which builds off work by other, by other rational choice scholars, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I make it explicitly in this book. Well, let's dig into some of the big puzzles then. Uh, you know, so basically this is in many ways, it is a puzzle driven book and there's a lot of really compelling puzzles in it, but let's start with the one about the title of the book, Order Out of Chaos. And uh, we talked already about the very sudden collapse of the Iraqi state. So why is that important? So when you talk about the, we all have this, we all have this Donald Rumsfeld quote in our head when we talk, when we think about the looting that happened in Iraq. But when you, when you went into buildings, any public building in Iraq after the, in, in the months after the invasion, it had been looted down to its foundations. And when I say looted, it wasn't just the, the desks and the drawers and the, the file cabinets that were taken out of police stations and government offices. Wires were ripped out of the walls. Uh, uh, any glass, any, any frames, if, uh, door frames or window frames that could be taken were removed. So literally the Iraqi state, the physical manifestation of the Iraqi state vanished in the, in the couple days of looting to the week of looting that happened right after the invasion. And not just that, the, the, the human capital of the state disappeared in many respects. Uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of employees, especially those who were in administrative responsibilities, fled or were killed. Um, not just because they were attacked because they were Baathists, but suddenly a lot of people were trying to settle old scores. Uh, people who had personal grudges against somebody because they, they'd been in a, a car wreck with somebody 10 years earlier and they couldn't get justice for it because the person was connected in some way. So suddenly the entire state collapsed and disappeared and there was no quick way for the occupation authorities to, to restart it. And I don't talk that much in the, about 
the occupation and about the pre-war planning and administration of the occupation because there's lots and lots of terrific work done highlighting the, the shortcomings and the complete failure of the, 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 the US and the British to plan for post-invasion occupation of, of Iraq. Uh, but you see the consequences of in the everyday lives of Iraqis who suddenly found themselves living in a stateless environment. And one of the things which is unique about that is that, uh, you know, in, a, in as you point out in the book, in a traditional failing state, you see the emergence of other competing power centers so that by the time the state ultimately collapses, there's already other players there in place. But that's really not what you saw in Basra. Yeah. So what happens is the week after the invasion, you know, trash isn't being collected. So it's just accumulating in the streets and in, in places where it's already 100 degrees. It starts to rot. Uh, the sewer things aren't being dug out. So they're just, there's congealed sewage there. Uh, suddenly people can shoot guns wherever you want. There's no police for anyone to stop them. So there's just a constant staccato of gunfire. And it, it, if you think there's a lot of guns in the US, you're right, but there's a tremendous amount of firepower around Iraq, especially after the looting of a lot of uh, Iraqi government uh, facilities and Ba'ath Party caches. Um, so there was just an everyday disorder to people's lives that was unexpected and that Iraqis hadn't dealt with before and frankly didn't have the sort of social networks or pre-existing civil society organizations to deal with. In other places where quote unquote states fail, oftentimes it's preceded by months or years or decades of weakening state, of a weakening state or a state that was never strong in the first place. So in places like Yemen and Afghanistan, the state was never, was never that strong in many places. So people had, for years, had found other ways to substitute for the state or do things that the state would otherwise have done, like pick up trash, provide local order and things like that. There's a, uh, um, Sebastian Junger's book on, on, uh, on Afghanistan, he, I think it's the, somewhere in the Korengal Valley, he takes a helicopter into and he lands and he finds it's only the, like the, the, the second time in 50 years, somebody from the central government of Afghanistan had come to that valley, right? That place had lots of other ways of providing order in the absence of a state. Throughout most of Iraq, they didn't have that. And when I talk about Iraq, I'm talking about the Arab parts of Iraq. The Kurdistan area after 91 is a different story. But so Iraqis found themselves in a, in a suddenly collapsed state, not a state that had gradually collapsed over time and in which, like you said, multiple power centers, but basically people had figured out other ways to provide order. And so one of the big puzzles that you start with then is, you know, how do they, how do people come together and solve these problems? Yeah. So, you know, the average person in, in Arab or in urban areas of Iraq after the war, suddenly their life is unordered in the sense that there's trash in the streets, there's gunfire, there's just all this uncertainty. And what happened is Friday mosques began holding sermons. And I'm going to, I'm going to say began uh, in, in a particular way. I'll come back to that began holding sermons that addressed local issues. And a lot of these local issues had a geographic or a spatial component to them, like trash in a street. So if you just wanna figure out how to, how to make your life better, like in your neighborhood, trash is, there's a lot of different ways we might deal with the trash that's accumulating in our street. We might all go dump it in a certain place. We might uh, burn it. There's all sorts of ways you could solve it. But what Friday mosques did, those sermons, a preacher had a megaphone. That, that amplified literally and figuratively any pre-existing authority that they had. And I argue that people turn to, the, to Islam, not necessarily because of the message of Islam, but because Islam had an ability to deliver messages in ways that rendered them common knowledge. And common knowledge is, uh, in game theoretic terms, knowledge of other people's knowledge. I know that you know that I know that you know. And it had an unparalleled ability tell people a message in a way, in a geographical space where everyone heard it and knew that everyone else heard it. And so the core argument of the book in, in, in one sense is that people turn to the mosque because the mosque helped them solve, helped individuals, self-interested individuals, solve coordination problems, help them figure out how to solve issues with their neighbors. So right after the war, preachers acting on their own, their local neighborhood restarted Friday sermons and said, we got lots of problems in our neighborhood. The first one's trash. Here's how we're going to deal with it. And people who just wanted to solve that heard their neighbors, heard a message, and so they solved it. The next week, the preacher would come back and talk about a slightly higher order issue. 
The next week, come back and talk about a slightly higher order issue. And in this sense, the authority of preachers ratcheted up week after week. But I argue in the book that they were only able to solve issues that were about coordinating together, not about issues that were solving costly collective action problems where people had an incentive to free ride. So in that sense, I talk about this origin of, of, or of authority, preacher's authority, but I'm also able to deductively restrict that. I'm able to show the limits of that authority, what issues they have authority over, how far it can reach, and also the communities it could reach and the communities it could not reach. And then I link that to sectarianism and then to why Shias were able to solve both local problems and then eventually national level problems while the Sunni Arabs were not. Now let's stick with the mosques for a moment, because um, one of the arguments you make is, uh, actually there's two of them that are connected. One is that um, the mosques were uniquely able to provide this common knowledge. And the other has to do with like the physical locations of the mosques, which is a which is quite interesting. Tell, tell us about these two and how these come together. Yeah, so the, the thing about so first of all, Shias did not, for the most part, Shias did not have Friday sermons in Iraq before the invasion. Uh, there's a long history of the uh, uh, the, the permissibility of holding Friday sermons for Shias in the absence of an imam and in the absence of the Mahdi. Uh, this is especially an issue in Sunni majority areas where the tradition is you you bless the bless the the leader, but in Iraq basically they they did not hold sermons in Shia mosques and there had been a fatwa since the 1950s with Muslim al-Hakim saying not to hold Friday sermons under a secular authority. Now there are exceptions. There's this small Khaleesi movement which had sermons in one mosque, and then famously Muqtada's father, uh, Grand Ayatollah Muhammad Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr, restarted Friday mosques. In the, Friday, sir, in the Friday mosques affiliated with his network in the early 90s. And then he himself gave 40 some sermons uh, in the, until his assassination in February, 1999. And then they stopped. So most Shias in Iraq, most Shia men had never attended a Friday sermon before, before the invasion. They might've held Friday prayers, but those are slightly different in terms of uh, ritual prostrations and you, it, they don't have the sermons. And certainly the sermons that were held were not political in any way. There was no tradition before 2003 of Iraqi Shias looking to their clerics for political leadership. It's a long history of quietism in Iraq, of, of Iraqi Shia leaders avoiding involvement in politics that dates back to a deal between five exiled Grand Ayatollahs and the British in 1925. And we can, if you want to get into the nitty gritty, there's some debates about the 60s, about the extent to which Musa and Al-Qim kind of slightly politicized things. But there's, there were lots of dynamic events in Iraq in the 20th century, coups, uprisings, there are all sorts of opportunities for the Shia clergy to get involved in politics, and they had not. So there was no expectation on the part of Iraqi Shia, 2003, that their clerical mm -hmm. uh, um, I don't want I want to be careful what I say here, right? Because they were clear, there were there were clerics, but they weren't necessarily clerical authorities or leaders in the sense that they could say things and people would follow them. There was no expectation that they would get involved in politics. And so you have to explain why they turned to them. Now, there's a temptation just to most arguments about why Iraqis turn to the mosque end up being primordial. There's just this belief that when the state collapses or times get tough, people turn to these deeply seated emotional attachments that they have. I think that's problematic because people have lots of different attachments. Just because you have attachments with something doesn't mean that there's a, a inherently a sense of weeness with it. There's also, it can mean different things. When you say there were, and one of the things I talk about in the book is it's post-invasion Iraq is often described as a, is often described as a vacuum. It wasn't. If anything, it was a cacophony. There were, dozens of different people claiming authority and trying to get Iraqis to act in certain ways. There were exiled parties coming back, many of which were Islamist parties, right? Like the Dawa movement. And in, in Basra, there were at least two different Dawa parties competing. Badr, Skiri, who by, at this point were acting independently of one another. There were the Sadrists that came back from underground. But then there were a lot of other religious groups that had nothing to do with those pre-existing political parties. That there were, there were uh, uh, Sufi movements for the for uh, Sunni groups. They were these millenarian movements that were suddenly popping up. There were all sorts of religious actors who weren't necessarily clerical, like uh, the the uh, Sayed families. Um, there were uh, preachers who were more associated with the Muharram rituals and Ashura than they were with 
mosques in any way. Uh, there were Husseiniya prayer groups, these informal networks uh, just associated with people who pray in Husseiniya together. So there were all sorts of people who were act who could have been quote unquote the religious uh, mm -hmm. the religious authorities. Explaining why the clerics and especially Friday preachers in Sistani who controlled networks of Friday preachers became the important ones. That's something that has to be explained. And so you bring Sistani into it. So let's walk it through. Why was Sistani able to win out from amidst this cacophony? So I, I pardon the play on words, but amid this cacophony, there was there was one voice that eventually rose above the din, and that was Sistani's, right? Uh, and the argument I make in the book is that fried Shia preachers independently after the war began Friday sermons and began addressing local issues in their neighborhood. Sistani retroactively authorized the clerics in his network. I say the most likely situation is that Sistani retroactively authorized them to give Friday sermons. And then he started uh, disseminating through his Friday preachers statements about national level issues. And the Friday sermon is, is almost uniquely, is, is structured in a way that's perfect for this. A Friday sermon usually consists of two different sermons uh, with the preacher sitting down briefly between them. And in mosques I went to, usually the same preacher gave both sermons, but sometimes a, se a second preacher would. But it's set up where a preacher can talk about local issues, about trash in the neighborhood or what to do with looted goods or how to treat people who they know are are violating new and emerging social norms, but then they can also disseminate some message from Sistani about uh, the issues of uh, the interim constitution or the transition plan to appoint, uh, if you remember back in this time, there were initial uh, plans by the coalition provisional authority to appoint a committee to write a constitution. And Sistani came out against this and said the constitution has to be written by an elected body or approved by an elected body. So it's, it's structured to do that. But I argue that Sistani basically came in afterwards and used that network of preachers that was already gaining authority or having their pre-existing authority amplified by their ability to coordinate neighborhoods on local level issues. He used that then to disseminate messages uh, across his network. And the difference is between those individual, between those individual mosques and the network of mosques is the Shia clergy are very structured in the sense that they're hierarchical, that Sistani sitting atop of this, of this network of preachers. But it means that if you're, if you're a Shia, uh, if you're a Shi'i sitting in a, in a Sistani mosque in Basra on a Friday, you knew that everybody else attending a Friday mosque in a, Sistani, a, a Sistani affiliated mosque that Friday was hearing a similar message. So these are people you would never meet, but suddenly you knew what they were also hearing. This is, this is uh, a Benedict Anderson imagined community forming, if you, if you want to think of it in that sense, that you could now imagine yourself being part of a community with this large dispersed group. And Sistani wasn't, wasn't framing his messages as Shia or Sistani affiliated Shia. To him, these were all national level messages. And so what was happening though, is it was reaching a certain segment of Iraq's population. Sistani affiliated Shia, pre, uh, Shia followers, Mokulids, but not, uh, actually not Mokulids, because a lot of people going to the mosque weren't followers of Sistani and vice versa. A lot of the people who were going to mosques affiliated with Mokta, the Southers network, which was a restarting of his father's, they weren't necessarily uh, followers of the Southers. People were often, usually just going to whatever Friday mosque was closest to their house. So you saw this emergence of a, of a, of a national level, uh, a Shia ability to coordinate, a weeness among Shia that didn't exist among Sunnis. Sunnis were also using Friday mosques for the same way. Preacher, Sunni preachers before the war were Baathist, uh, were oftentimes affiliated with the Baath party, but they, they were distributing Baath propaganda. They weren't mobilizing communities the way they began to after the war. Um, and so we can talk more about that, but the big difference is that Sistani's messages were, were, were reaching lots of different congregations. Sunnis didn't have that ability because of the structure of the, the Sunni clergy, which is more hierarchical and dispersed. The most influential actors among the Sunni Arabs uh, in the immediate post-invasion period were actually the groups that were most like Sistani in the sense that they had an ability to coordinate messages across mosques. The, the two were uh, uh, the, the Association of Muslim Scholars and the and Adnan Dalemi, who was a preacher who ran the Diwan, the the organization in the Iraqi, new Iraqi government that was responsible for all the Sunni walks and endowments. 
So they were the, they became surprisingly the most important political entrepreneurs among Sunni Arabs in the immediate post-invasion period. And their authority, I argue, was actually based on a very similar structure as, as Sistani's, but limited in their ability to get preachers to follow through on delivering these messages and the reach of those messages. And so throughout all of this, then, what comes through is this really interesting argument that, that it's really about the information uh, and, and the common knowledge rather than pre-existing religious authority, rather than, you know, the intrinsic content of the messages. Let's take a step back then, or maybe a step forward. And what does this say about Sistani and his influence? When, when is he able to exercise authority? When is he not in this landscape? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I build off uh, Abner Greif's work. Uh, Abner Greif's this fantastic economist who's, who sh works, is sh I, I'm still stunned that political scientists aren't reading uh, his, his book on institutions because it just, it, it really builds and makes you revisit and question a lot of the stuff in Douglas North's works on institutions, which I think is where most political scientists uh, start from. But the difference is, Usually when we talk about institutions, we take individuals' incentives to follow things as exogenous. What's really nice about Greif's work and about uh, this perspective, this kind of game theoretic understanding of institutions is you have to explain why people have an incentive to follow those rules, right? And so a, a constitution says that a, a leader can't run, a president can't run for more than two terms. Well, you know, sometimes that's followed, sometimes it's not. So what, what Greif says and what I build on in the book is that somebody who claims to be a political authority or issue a rule in this situation, do X, everyone stand up. If you say that to a room of people, very few people are going to stand up. This institutional perspective argues that three things have to happen. One is somebody disseminating that message has to be able to render it in a way that's common knowledge. So everyone knows that everyone else has heard that message, but that alone is insufficient, right? People also need to believe that other people will act on that message. That's what Greif talks about, that Michael Che and other people have done terrific work on coordination really didn't develop fully. Now, Greif still links it to legitimacy, but we have a situation here where there wasn't a pre-existing belief on how you would do it. There wasn't a history of how to coordinate. So you have to explain why people came to believe that other people would act on that message. And then the third part is that that message has to Knowing that everyone else got the message and would act on the message, it's then in your incentive to act on that message as well. And that's what helps differentiate kind of coordination games from uh, situations that are more subject to free riding or that, that are costly. What I argue is that Sistani's power was limited to coordination situations in the sense that Sistani could only get people to do things that people would do if enough others were already doing them or also doing them at the same time. Now, when you talk, when you, when you go back and read what a lot of journalists were hearing from Iraqis at the time, uh, a lot of Shias were saying, anything Sistani asks, I'll do. The thing is, Sistani knows that his authority is limited. So Sistani in equilibrium, he's only going to say, issue orders that he knows his followers will follow. Because there's a tendency to compare the Shia, the structure of Shia clergy today with the, with the Catholic Church. But the difference is the Catholic Church has one pope. Shias have lots of different marjas, and those, those maraji are in competition with one another. And if Sistani says something that's not followed, his authority goes down in the sense that the next message he issues, the next ruling he issues, people are less likely to believe that other people will act on that message if they have already seen people disobey previous ones. So he's only going to say things that he knows people will follow. And so in this sense, you own everything that he says is followed, but he only says things that he knows are going to be followed. He kind of has his finger to the wind and he himself doesn't, right? He's cloistered. He's, he's a recluse, but he has his network of clerics who are his eyes and ears, his son-in-law, all grand ayatollahs are like this. And so they're very careful of their authority because it is, it is very, uh, uh, it's very brittle in some sense, right? Their, their power isn't just them, them, their power is their ability to get people to follow them. And the people are gonna follow them, I argue, if they believe that other people are also gonna follow them. And if enough people dis see others not following them, it opens up them to rivals. 
And now traditionally you've had other clerics kind of from the upstarts, uh, the Shirazi movement, for example, mm -hmm. Muhammad al-Shirazi was famous for this, uh, um, uh, Muhammad, Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr, who come out and are kind of challenge those, Mukta the sadr nowadays, challenge those senior most uh, uh, clerics for not being involved more saying, or getting more involved in politics. But Sistani's influence was, was quite limited in post-invasion Iraq. And I go through the book and talk about the situations that he was influential on, but also those he was not. And if you just look at how Iraq has unfolded since the, the, since the invasion, clearly what we have, the situation we have now is not one that Sistani wants. He's come out and pushed for reform at various points, but what he hasn't done is been able to shape the system the way he wants it to. So his Sistani's influence is limited. What I do in this book is I, I outline, and I think I show the first theory that allows us to deductively restrict his actual authority, his ability to get people to do what he wants. All the other accounts of Sistani's authority, it basically implies that it's almost unlimited. He can do whatever he wants. He can get people to do whatever he wants. Or if you want to go back to Weber, you can talk about traditional authority, but then his, his authority should be limited to what traditionally Shia clerics had been able to do, which was extremely little, was just confined to religious guidance and education. And so he's already violated kind of what you'd expect from a Weberian framework. So I engage, I use Weber as a starting point to talk about Sistani's authority. But what I do in the book, which I think is, is, is important, is I show the limits of Sistani's authority. And that helps us explain why when he told Shias in 2006, I'm sorry, in 2000, uh, yeah, 2006, after the bombing of the, of the shrine in Samara, not to retaliate, when he was disobeyed, why he basically stepped back from politics and why Iraq descended into really nasty sectarian civil war uh, for, for, for years, uh, why he wasn't able to stop that and why that was really a, a, a de decimating blow to his authority and limited what he was able to do over the next decade. There's a lot of interesting kind of empirical examples you give there. So, for example, Sistani is able to kind of endorse and uh, help drive the success of the United Shia list in the election, but he's not able to affect local government, you know, kind of local level elections. Um, and then you also, you know, show quite nicely how Muqtada al-Sadr repeatedly overreaches because he doesn't understand what Sistani seems to understand about where this authority is coming from. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. And so Sistani, there's all sorts of stuff from the very beginning that Sistani does get disobeyed on. And he actually backs off on making more ambitious statements when he sees his uh, more ambitious efforts not having an impact. So he tells clerics not to run for office, but even some clerics who are very closely aligned with him do run for office, right? He, uh, um, he makes statements about uh, trying to sink this provision in the interim constitution that would give... Uh, any three provinces of veto, and he's not able to get that out. He's not able to get enough people against that, so he he backs down. Um, but I, I analyze these early elections in 2005 in the book, which which now Iraq has had several other elections. But what I think is nice about those 2005 elections is that on the same day in, in January 2005, Iraqis are voting for a governing council at the at the at the government level and for a national level parliament, an interim uh, transitional assembly, and at the same day what you see is tremendous difference in vote share and vote fracturing among Shias. So they vote at the national level for the United Iraqi Alliance, which was an, a, a coalition that Sistani brought together because once Shia clerics saw, well, I'm sorry, once, once parties that were reliant on Shia voters or were expected to be reliant on Shia voters saw that Sistani was gonna coordinate Shia voters on a single list, they all came together. Uh, but what they didn't do was come together on government council elections. And what you often saw was them competing against one another. And so what you what you had were very different vote degrees of vote fracturing among Shia voters at the national versus the government level elections. And at the government, they were voting for tribal leaders, religious groups, all sorts of parties. But at the national level, Sistani was coordinating them on uh, on the United Iraqi Alliance, which uh, goes on to, to dominate Iraqi politics for a couple of elections. Whereas when you talk about Sadr, you talk about how he like asks his followers to do costly things and it backfires on him in ways that Sistani for at least a few years was able to avoid. And so I argue from, I, there's a real tendency to denigrate Mukta the Sadr and to, to de, to call him the, uh, 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 
connect them to playing Atari and things like this. There's uh, from the beginning for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, a Rocky analysts and also people affiliated with the US uh, occupation were really dismissing Sudder. But I argue in the book that Sudder's authority in, in many ways was based on one very similar to Sistani's, although he himself is nowhere near a, a grand ayatollah. There's stages you go through in, the, in, a, in a Shia seminary, a, a, he was nowhere near finishing or having a, being qualified to be a, 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 a mushtahid himself, much less one is emulated. But what he did was he restarted his father's, his late father's marjiyya. Uh, and so the Sadr was always running the, the, the office of the second martyred Sadr, who was his father. And after his father dies in 1999, his father's assassinated in 1999, uh, his father's preachers uh, fracture. Some em start emulating uh, 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 an, an Iraqi Madrasha who had been affiliated with Dawa but had been in Iran. Um, others uh, go underground. There's a brief, there's an uprising by the Sudderists in uh, March 1999 where a lot of them are repressed and they flee. But so after the war and after the invasion in 2003, Mukta is able to consolidate authority over part, a remnant of his father's fractured Marjiyya um, and have one or two Friday sermons in each of the major cities and towns in uh, Arab Iraq. And so at the beginning, he tries a similar thing. He restarts Friday sermons. And I think oftentimes the Sistani affiliated preachers started holding Friday sermons when they saw at the next Friday mosque over the Sudderists restarting Friday sermons. Uh, so there was, there was kind of this mimicry going on. It's kind of ironic uh, in the end of the day that Sistani's authority, I argue, was built on Friday sermons, which is what the Sudderists had built their reputation on and where, where his father's uh, legacy really, really sits. Uh, but so Mukta the Sudder tries all sorts of things early on. He, he calls on Iraqis not to cooperate with the uh, coalition occupation authorities or Iraqis helping them in any way. He actually forms a shadow government in late 2003, uh, which fails miserably. And he does overreach again and again, uh, which explains uh, the, the limits of his authority. Uh, over time, what you see is the Sudderists also forming militias and extracting enough resources to sustain and pay a militia and then combining sermons with militia authority. So it's not just coordination, but they do have some sort of coercive capacity, which allows them at least locally to solve more than coordination problems, but some uh, situations that are based on, that are subject to free riding by punishing people who don't participate or by providing incentives, inducing people to, to, to uh, contribute. Well, great. Thanks. Uh, we've been talking to David Patel. There's so much more in this book that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, the, the differences in the Sunni community, uh, this really creative use of GIS mapping. Um, the uh, you, you talk about the, uh, you know, the historiography of the rise of Islamization in Iraq in the 1990s. So everyone's going to have to go and read the book themselves to find all of that. David, thank you so much for joining us. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's book segment, we're joined by Jessica Barnes at the University of South Carolina. She's the author of the new book, Staple Security, Bread and Wheat in Egypt, just published by Duke University Press. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. So it's great to talk to you again. Um, tell us a little bit about this book and uh, why you wrote it. Well, bread and wheat was something I've actually been thinking about for some time. Uh, I did my first field work in Egypt in 2007 and 2008. Um, and that was for my first book, which was all about irrigation and water politics. But that was the time of severe bread shortages. Um, so I noticed, I noticed long lines at bakeries. This was something that people were talking about. Um, also, a lot of the farmers who I did field work with for that project grew wheat. Um, and many of the women in the village where I lived baked bread. So bread and wheat was something in my mind, uh, but then it really came to the fore of my attention in 2011 in the Egyptian revolution 
when bread took on such a kind of symbolic role in that, you know, in the, the central calls for bread, freedom and social justice. Um, and I was really struck by the fact that while a lot of people have been writing and thinking about kind of um, the protesters' concerns about political freedom and social inequality, there hadn't really been nearly so much attention paid to the, the staple food that was also featuring in their rallying cries. Um, now, obviously, bread in those rallying cries was partly symbolic, but I think it was also actually about the food, this food that Egyptians eat three times a day. Um, most Egyptians eat three times a day. So I decided I wanted to, to write about bread. And as with my first book project, I felt that if I wanted to write about bread, I really had to trace it back to the wheat uh, from which that bread is made. So that is really where the, where the uh, idea for this book came from. Now, the book is about a lot of things, but I think the the main character of the book, uh, such as it is, um, besides yourself, of course, um, is is Baladi Bread. Tell us what that is and why it's so important to your story. So Baladi Bread, or, or what I refer to as Baladi Bread, um, it, could, it can be called different things. Mm -hmm. But what I refer to as Baladi Bread in the book is this subsidized bread that is eaten by a really huge number of people on a daily basis. It's estimated about 72 million Egyptians eat this bread daily. Um, this is the bread that has been subsidized by the government since the 1940s. Um, its price has not increased since 1989. It costs five piastres a loaf. And it really has this huge um, social, cultural and political significance in Egypt. So the book is, it is a central feature in the book because a lot of the book is really about um, both the importance of this bread to people's day-to-day -day lives, but also how the work that goes into ensuring that bread is available. Now this Belladi bread, uh, at the title of the book, Staple Security, I mean, you postulate this or you read it in a very interesting way as, you know, as actually about security in all kinds of different levels. Yes, that really came out of the fieldwork. So I am not a security scholar. I don't have a background in security mm -hmm. studies. Um, it, it wasn't what sort of drew me to this topic. But what I noticed uh, from doing this research, both when I was talking to sort of policymakers and people working on that kind of national level of the kind of managing the subsidy pro program, and when I talked to Egyptian people about bread in their homes, this was a kind of recurrent theme, sometimes very explicit. I mean, at the national level, bread and wheat are very explicitly security issues in Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, but then also at the household level in these kind of in these sort of more subtle ways. But you sort of really get the sense of how people felt if they didn't have bread in the home, that there was this was a a real source of concern to people. Um, so that's how that ended up being this kind of frame through which I analyzed uh, the bread and the wheat. And of course, the regime is highly sensitive to the possibilities that shortages of bread um, or increases in the price of bread could threaten their own security. Yes, absolutely. Yes, there's this real concern about instability and the bread riot. Now, obviously, yeah. a lot of scholars have written about bread riots. And kind of one of the key take homes from this large body of scholarship is that these riots aren't just about bread. Uh, but I think what is particularly interesting in the Egyptian context is that may be the case, but still it figures as this kind of threatening presence. So politicians yeah. will often talk about the bread riot or the riots of the past of 1977 which yes, weren't just about bread, but they often will talk about them as the reason why they can't take particular actions or they don't want to kind of shrink this program at all. But the concept of the staple suggests that in some ways it is about bread, that uh, yes, there's subsidies on oil and fuel and, and cooking oil and other things, but there's something special about bread. And uh, that seems that really comes through in the way your interlocutors talk about it and the way the government talks about it. Yes, I think it's there is something different about bread. And we can see that in the present moment, just as one example. Um, Egypt has just gone through the negotiations for a new IMF loan. Now, according to reports, and I wasn't there obviously in the negotiation room, but according to reports, some IMF officials were pushing for Egypt to completely lift the bread subsidy. And uh, this would be highly controversial. And sure enough, when the loan agreement was published and agreed in December 2022, 
there is no mention of the bread subsidy, of any changes in the bread subsidy, but the Egyptian government has agreed to further roll back energy subsidies. So yes, mm-hmm. there there is something distinct here in that the government's willingness to kind of roll back other forms of social protection, but unwillingness to make substantive changes to the bread program. No, that's really interesting. So in the book itself, uh, you know, this is something which is familiar from your other work and from uh, and from some other books like Jose Martinez's book. You really move across scale in interesting ways where you're at some points, this is an ethnography of yourself sitting in the home. At other times, you're sitting with government bureaucrats and digging deep into the kind of the documents. Tell us a little bit about what went into the making of the book and how you got to where you are. Yes, that's always a sort of central goal of my work is to try and link and talk across these scales. I really, truly believe that you can't understand uh, sort of key social, political, environmental phenomenon unless you try and look at these multiple scales. And obviously, you'll never be able to talk about everything in kind of absolutely the same level of detail or in the same ways. But I, I think it's important to try and think and link across those scales. Um, so methodologically, the book draws on the um, the rural ethnography that I've been doing since 2007, so in Fayoum. Um, so I had a year of field work back in 2007, 2008. Uh, so it builds on those field notes as well as repeated trips back to that village since then. Um, but it partners those with different kinds of sources. So I also interviewed people who work on grain trade issues. I went to a grain trading conference in uh, Dubai. Um, I tried to talk with different kinds of government officials who are involved in uh, things like grain storage at a national level or people who are working for international donor projects that are supporting uh, storage, grain storage projects. Um, I also draw on certain kinds of government documentation that documents what's going on at that kind of national level. Um, In addition, I really wanted this, um, I really wanted to tell the story in this book about the importance of this subsidized bread to people's day-to-day lives. And uh, while it is important in the rural area where I've done a lot of my research, it's of particular importance in the cities because there people don't grow their own wheat. And so they are wholly reliant on, on this bread. And so I partnered with an Egyptian research assistant and the and she did kind of in-depth ethnography in a in an urban neighborhood at the bakeries, kind of going on a daily basis, seeing how people, the conversations in the short lines and what kind of bread, how people were handling their bread. And so we have a chapter, a co-author chapter in the book that really is trying to kind of tell that piece of the story as well. Well, maybe a good place to start to like dig into the real substance of the book might be with some of these uh, rural uh, families who are growing wheat and who are like trying to navigate uh, the marketplace and different kinds of environmental and seed choices and uh, and, you know, using the wheat for themselves. Tell us a little bit about that part of it and your ethnography and kind of what you learned. Yes, yeah, so most of the wheat that's grown in Egypt and a lot of wheat, yeah, Egypt does produce a lot of wheat. It's mostly grown on a very small scale at farms that are just, you know, an acre, a couple of acres, five acres in size, like very small scale, scale farms. And um, these farms typically uh, grow wheat partly or partly primarily really for household consumption Um, and then they'll sell the remainder of their produce to the government so in theory they aren't meant to sell directly to the private sector they sell they sell to the government purchasing agency that then buys the remainder for the subsidized bread program and one of the things that I found was interesting was that the way the government officials talk about this or one of the dominant mechanisms they use to try and both encourage farmers to grow wheat and then to get them to sell their wheat is price, uh, pricing. Uh, so mm-hmm. they, there's procurement price features, figures as a very kind of big looming object that lots of a lot of policy ink is spilt over kind of what should be the procurement price. And the assumption is that um, farmers will that if you offer them a good price, farmers will sell more of the wheat. And what I show in the chapter and through my ethnography is that you know, that might well be the case for some farmers, but for many of the sort of small scale farmers, price is really not their dominant concern when it comes to thinking about how much wheat they want to grow and how much they want to 
want to sell and, you know obviously they very, very much can care about prices but when they're looking for profits they don't grow wheat they grow other kinds of crops in onions Fayum, i, I would have guessed onions uh, yes in Fayum, it's onions so there that that call all those assumptions about this kind of economic rationale that's driving farmers decision making on wheat i think really miss the mark because they don't understand that really farmers that's not their farmers primary concern so I, I don't mean that farmers are kind of divorced yeah. from the market or they're not trying to kind of make money because they are. It's just wheat is not the crop through which they do that. So what is their primary concern then? I think it is uh, growing for their household production, their household consumption, um, you know, knowing that uh, should they have the female labor in the house that they're present, ready to turn this wheat into the bread that most prefer to eat, then that is their goal is that they want to grow wheat so they can have those sacks of grain in their house and they know that their bread needs are covered for the for the remainder of the year one of the really interesting uh kind of parts early on in the book is about the role of the scientists and the the agronomists in like trying to maximize yield and introduce new seed varieties and how the local farmers you know don't want any part of it a lot of the time because they have their own ways of doing things yeah yeah, at different points in time, uh, that has been the case. Um, I suppose one of the points I wanted to make in that chapter that sort of looks at the history of seed breeding in Egypt is that there's this kind of common narrative about the Green Revolution as having been a bad thing, and um, also about it having been really led by other countries. And what you see in the Egyptian case is that, you know, there was a lot of role of international expertise, but also there were a lot of very proficient brilliant Egyptian seed breeders who made kind of huge mm -hmm. strides in improving the increasing the yields in Egypt. Um, and I, I don't think it's sort of such a simple story of farmers having had the short end of the stick, you know, small scale farmers not doing well from the Green Revolution. By and large, you know, everyone's yields have gone up. And I think that has been, you know, there have been some negative ramifications in terms of chemical usage. But mm -hmm. by and large, that's actually been a good thing for most Egyptian farmers. So it's a bit of a different story to the one that's commonly told through countries like India and their mm -hmm. experience with the Green Revolution. No, it's very interesting. And, um, you know, and here we get back to your concept of security, because there's a couple of issues there, right? There's yield, there's also resistance to disease, and then there's also optimizing for a rapidly changing climate. And yeah. those are like a lot of things to, to grapple with. Yes. And again, it's just interesting to me. It wasn't something I was particularly uh, expecting. But when you look at the uh, breeding literature, you know, the, what plant breeders are saying or what people in the Ministry of Agriculture are saying, again, it's very explicitly framed in terms of security. It's like, you know, we've got to make these agricultural developments. We've got to improve our our crops because otherwise, you know, there's a risk we'll run out of food for our growing population, you know, or, you know, if we don't make our crops, our wheat disease resistant, then a pest could come and wipe out all of our wheat, you know, so it's a real sort of threat response dialogue, uh, sort of uh, discourse is going on there. And then, of course, that carries over into the other half of it, of procurement, which is uh, the, the importing of wheat. And uh, last time you were on the podcast, we talked about the effects of Ukraine and Ru the yeah. you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine and the possible disruption of supply. And but this runs through the entire history that you describe in this book of uh, the efforts to secure kind of reliable, disease free um, and affordable flows of, of grain. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's definitely a long story in the Egyptian case, um, you know, because while Egypt has you know, always been a, or for a long time, you know, for many thousands of years, has been a major producer of wheat. Um, over the course of the 20th century, at many at different points in time, it's also become a major importer. But the government has always been aware of the vulnerabilities that come from relying or from sourcing some of your supply from overseas. So at different points in time, different governments have kind of pushed or there have been yearnings for self-sufficiency, different kind of political leaders have made these claims of, you know, maybe we could make Egypt self-sufficient, but um, it's been some while since they, they have been. There's this fascinating little vignette, uh, you know, midway through the book um, where, you know, you're talking about the storage of wheat and you're, and all the international traders are saying, this is insane. Why are you wasting your time? Just keep the supply chain secure. But there's something about the psychology, you argue, of these full storage bins, kind of the physical demonstration. 
yes, I mean, it's such an interesting juxtaposition. I mean, yeah, there's to grain traders, this whole notion that you want to kind of have a stock of wheat in your silos is very old fashioned. And they say that, you know, it's kind of old school approach. You know, why would you do that? You can get wheat from all around the world. You want to be nimble and respond to prices. Now, they don't talk about how that's how they make money. You know, they make money from people moving wheat around the world. So they have a stake in the game too. Um, but yes, I think it's uh, from the government's perspective and actually from probably some members of the public too, it doesn't really work like that. There's a real kind of desire to be able to say, you know, we have this amount of wheat in stock, you know, we have the, and, you know, I think that's evident in the fact that the government issues these press releases that are saying on a regular mm -hmm. basis saying, you know, our silos have enough wheat for the next X months of, you know, or to last until February or to last until April, you know, so they clearly are wanting to create this impression to the public that don't worry, you know, we have enough wheat in stock. Yeah, because then there's the, the this deep concerns about, uh, as we were talking about before, both about people, about shortages, people not having bread, um, but also what that could mean in terms of political stability. Yes. Yes, but absolutely. then a lot of the book, though, really isn't about that so much. And here's where it gets very interesting uh, to me. The whole thing's interesting. But the flip over to what security means at the family level, at the individual level, um, is, I think, what really gives it a distinctive spin. And I think that's kind of where your heart really was um, kind of going into the book, it seems like. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's where my heart is. But I believe that all parts of the story <laughs> have to be told. But yes, I think I mean, that's in a way or that's where I think I can contribute the most in a, in a way, because, you know, a lot of policy scholars, uh, mm -hmm. economists have written about Egypt's subsidized bread program. You know, a lot of um, there are a lot of kind of technical reports that would tell you about the wheat supply chain in Egypt. So, you know, I'm I'm drawing on those and, and sort of helping explain all those stretches. But what, yeah. what hasn't been done so much is kind of really thinking about people's lives and, and that's talk, i think what that's about that. stake yeah. here. let's talk about that about the household level the individual level like what bread means um to them so just to give one example that the chapter where i really kind of uh, my co-author chapter with miriam taher uh, where we really go into the depths of the the subsidized bread program we tell the story of a woman who's from a, a, a neighborhood, a poor neighborhood in, in Cairo. She is not the poorest of the poor, um, but this, this subsidized bread, this cheap bread is a real lifeline to her and her family. It's something that's reliably cheap, that kind of even when other prices are going rapidly up as they have been over the past 10 years in Egypt, you know, she knows she can afford this. Um, and it it's sort of very important in her household. And so what we look at is what happens when uh, something goes wrong with the ration card she needs to to access this bread and actually she enters this whole bureaucratic saga over the next it stretches out four years before she actually ends up three or four years before she actually ends up getting the card I was and so being able to access and enraged reading that story <laughs> yeah it's a, a very kind of agonizing story to read but I think it it sort of uh, it shows a number of things I mean it shows some of the the frustrations of the bureaucracy mm -hmm. um, but it also shows what's at stake that this woman you know she's not starving you know she still her family survives but it makes her life so much more difficult not having this this thing that she relies on that's that really makes her and her family feel feel secure having uh having gotten documents renewed in the Mogadna before uh it, it certainly rings true about the Egyptian bureaucracy but it raises an interesting question about um you know the the as you mentioned the bread subsidy is kind of off limits politically, but you describe a number of ways in which uh, the government has tried to ease the burden, maybe by shadow purging people from the rolls, maybe by shrinking the size of the bread. So there's fewer, you know, there's smaller loaves. There's a lot of things like that going on there, which people notice. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I, so yes, so those are two kind of key things things they've done and that's been just in the last few years that they have uh, shrunk the number of people who are entitled to this bread um, and that has been kind of in some ways controversial I think it's still notable though that by far the majority of Egyptians are still entitled to this bread and so I think there were definitely people on the kind of but it's, it's a fuzzy line like what do who really should be entitled to the spread or who needs this bread? I mean, that's a subjective question. So certainly when they cut some people out of the bread program in the press, it was all framed in terms of, oh, these are kind of CEOs 
nose and mm -hmm. uh, you know very rich people who don't need this bread I think in reality that wasn't the case there were certainly some people who were cut out of the program who this bread was important to their daily lives um, the shrinking size of the bread I think is also yeah is fascinating people do notice this but uh, there's something about the the price that somehow has this kind of outside significance so that there is this even when they they made the last the last time they shrunk the size of the bread the minister of supply said you know we are reducing the size of the bread but don't worry we're keeping the price the same kind of as though people wouldn't understand that <laughs> they were getting less for their money but but right. i think that five piastres has just this huge political weight that's the totemic part but then, you know, but then you describe people who who are saying, like, I feel like the bread was bigger when I was when I was younger. Yeah. So they people. But yes, people definitely notice the, the size decreases. But I think they notice it in a different kind of way to the price increase. So there's one thing which is interesting there is uh, that you mentioned that unlike, say, the Jordanian case, these are private bakeries who have every interest in, like, skimming and, in, in, you know, if, go you know, producing bread that's smaller, selling off the rest. Um, it's an interesting system. I think it speaks to some of the differences between Jordan and Egypt and, you know, kind of the nature of the state. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So these are privately owned bakeries, and yet they still... Um they still are very deeply associated with the state. So that's kind of interesting. You know, when mm -hmm. people kind of think about these bakeries, you know, certainly, you know, if people aren't uns unsatisfied with the bread they get from a baker, they might be kind of cross with that bakery, but they, they also, it also reflects on the state. So yes, it is a very interesting relationship. And a number of the reforms that the government has done since 2015 have been specifically about trying to find ways to reduce that skimming off that happens mm -hmm. at the private baker level. And yet the introduction of this electronic system has really, I would argue, just opened up new spaces. Maybe it's, it's cut down on it probably a little bit, but it's actually just opened up new points where skimming can take place. We've all read James Scott. We know that people will find their ways. Exactly. Yes. So let's talk about the last chapter then, which is about the people who are just actually making the bread themselves. Very, It's a very, very tactile chapter. Yes. So this is partly about how, uh, how people bake in rural areas. Um, this was a you know something I wanted to write about partly because where I've been doing ethnography you know almost all the women in the households uh, bake their own bread so I wanted to write about this and it's also something that hasn't been it's a bit of a kind of black box in some of the literature that's written about wheat and bread in Egypt because you know they'll talk about not all the Egyptian wheat harvest is bought by the government but there's there's the kind of a lack of a fuzziness in terms of what's happening to that wheat that farmers are keeping and, you know, actually, when I spoke to some people in Cairo, they would say things like, well, no one bakes today. No one has time to bake today. And yet, certainly in in the village where I did my ethnography, there are a lot of people who are baking. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a similar way, I wanted to talk about, well, what are the things, what's that kind of everyday labor that goes into ensuring that people can provide, produce their own bread? Um, so it, it's partly about the labor of baking, but that's not a day daily act people do it typically every three or four weeks or so but there is a daily labor of kind of making sure they have enough flour and um making sure the bread stays fresh in the way or palatable to them um you know so that so there's other kinds of labors that are taking place in the home but that are all about really kind of making sure that families have what they consider to be tasty bread to eat What's interesting there is, again, as you mentioned earlier, it's not purely about economic rationality. It would be rational to take advantage of the subsidy and sell onions and buy wheat but people or buy flour. But you still see a lot of people growing their own wheat and doing this whole um, doing it this way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, that would be interesting to think of the actual economics of that. It probably would be cheaper to and actually sometimes people who don't go quite enough wheat who have to buy the flour to mm -hmm. homemade bread they sometimes say oh we can't really afford to do that so then they'll eat the subsidized bread so yes yes I think maybe that could be one key take-home point of the of the book is that there's much more than economics going on here you know yeah. and, and when it comes to bread it's it really features so centrally in people's lives it's about a lot more than you you know it's a, a taste really matters here it's not just about having bread 
or starving. It's really about having bread that people think tastes nice. I'm thinking back trying to remember if I ever had Belody bread. I think I used to eat the chamois bread. Well, I have to admit, I don't love it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy the the, the rural bread, but uh, it's not my favorite, the Belody bread. It's quite, um, it can be a bit gritty. They add a lot of bran and mm-hmm. it's a tiny bit bland for my taste. It's not super salty. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. But I mean, this is obviously a really relevant right now when you've got I mean, the Egyptian economy is in free fall and, you know, the cur- the the currency is collapsing. I suppose that when it's only five piastres, um, maybe that doesn't matter so much. But if prices have increased, you know, by 10, by a factor of 10, uh, or the currency has collapsed by a factor of 10, that's a de facto, um, you know, 10 times increase in the price of the bread. In the value of it, but not in the price because they haven't changed. Exactly. Right, right. Right. In the value of it. Yes, I think probably, which is why probably the government's in a bit of a conundrum right now, because President Sisi had made a couple of uh, comments that suggested he were, he and his administration were considering making changes to the price of bread. You know, he, yeah. he made the statement. It's ridiculous uh, or incredible, I think, was the translation that uh, that we sell 20 loaves for the price of a cigarette. Right, right. Um, but there has been a pause in the from the regime or from the leaders of the Ministry of Supply about any change. And I think I would guess that they are holding off until things stabilize a bit, because I think, yes, the value of this bread, the when everything else is becoming so much expensive. You know, if yeah. you can't afford eggs or you can't afford meat and you can't afford rice, then at least people can afford bread. Which makes that which makes the security dimension of it uh, just that much more intense. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this it's just a it's a really interesting book. It's um it's you know I'm glad that we had a chance to uh to to read it and talk it through. You know, where do you go from here? Uh, now that you've done uh the irrigation and the uh and the and the bread. <laughs> well, um actually I've started thinking about air <laughs> so i was uh you know one of the threads that we stream my work is a real interest in kind of materiality and mm-hmm. so that was a big theme uh in my water work was thinking about how does the sort of nature of this flowing good kind of shape a lot of the politics that emerge around it and then with the bread project you know a lot of it's about sort of the character the tactile characteristics of the bread or how do you go about kind of importing this huge mass of grain and storing it without it molding and so that was my kind of solid my intervention is a solid and and so then I just got discovered or I sort of started thinking it'd be so interesting to start thinking about air and air quality hmm. and I would have loved to do this project in Cairo but for a number of reasons I'm actually going to to shift I'm, I'm going to do this project in London which is where I'm from oh, so I continue to be really interested in the Middle East but for the for the next book I think is, is going to be a London-based ethnography well great thanks we've been speaking with uh, Jessica Barnes about her book Staple Security mm-hmm.